Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Adrian, I'm super excited for this interview today on the Silicon Valley Pod. First off, though, before we even start, I want to thank a lot of people. I want to thank Han High Investment that's allowing us to use their facility today for the recording. I want to thank Sabian Impact, Investment Impact Hub in Menlo Park that has allowed us to connect through an event that's held once a month there at their facilities, a live recording of this show. But more than anyone, I want to thank you and your lovely wife for coming all the way from LA to Silicon Valley for this interview. I know your background, but our audience doesn't. Can you give us a brief intro of your career up into this point? Absolutely, Sean. So first of all, let me start by saying thank you. I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm a huge fan of the show. I've listened to most of your episodes by now. And the fact that you think my background is interesting enough to join this cool group of people is a very humbling thing. So thank you for having me. And I would say thank you to my wife as well. The reason I, I got involved with Sapiens, it was through my wife. She was the first connection and she's been amazing throughout this whole journey. So since you thanked her, I'll, I'll jump on that and thank her as well. I would say about my background, it would be a, a bit more, I would say I, I can't really talk about my background without talking a little bit about my childhood because it was a big influence in, in how I came to, to this point in, in my career. My father was a photographer, a, a really well-published photographer. He's been in French press, National Geographic, et cetera, et cetera. And he traveled everywhere. He's been everywhere. And eventually his work led him to Cuba where he met my mother. She was a ballet dancer and she also danced at one of the most popular cabarets in, in Cuba. You know how the story goes, handsome Italian, Latin photographer and the young, beautiful dancer. So they fell in love. I was born. And because of my dad's work as a photographer, he had to travel a lot. So we left Cuba when I was three years old and stopped by several places around Central America, eventually ended up in South America. And this is where who I am today began for me. Throughout these travels with my dad, I became introduced to a ton of different cultures, a ton of different communities. Because of my dad's work, he always made it a point to immerse himself in the communities that he was photographing. So this allowed me to notice the differences on how people communicate. We visited a lot of markets throughout South America and the way that different cultures negotiated amongst themselves, the way they dealt with each other was something that, that really fascinated me. And throughout having so much diversity in my family, a lot of artists, I, I wanted to I developed a lot of interest. So when it came time to decide what I wanted to do with my life, I wanted to do something that allowed me to explore all of the different interests that I had, while at the same time, just continuing to explore this curiosity I had for, for how humans interact with each other and how they, they negotiate and they deal with each other. Not surprisingly, I ended up choosing business with a focus on sales and negotiation. So I've always been the, the type of person who pushed myself a little too hard at times. So I, I went straight in. I, I started my first company when we first moved to the U.S. I was 16 years old at the time. And I just started applying all these new skill sets around sales, around business that I was learning. And they started working right away. So I was implementing as we built. Uh, I was able to scale my first business ever to over a million dollars in revenue. We sold that. And that kind of jump-started what became my career. Just uh, for our audience, yes. how old were you when you sold this? I was 18. I was 18 years old. 
And at the time, or as I continue building after that, I launched some startups. I had all kinds of different businesses that I got myself into. And again, all around something that interested me, but backed by my desire to learn how people communicated, how people negotiated. So it was very sales intensive. And there was a point in my life, in my career, that I stumbled upon a very interesting problem, which is during the sales process, when even though I was telling the truth, I wasn't always being believed. And that was a very interesting thing that led me, obviously, to, to Daniel Kahneman's work. It then led me down the rabbit hole of behavioral economics, of cognitive psychology, and truly understanding the next level of what is it that allows us to, to believe each other, to, to receive knowledge and accept that knowledge in the way in which it was intended. And discovering this deeper side of how the human mind works, uh, I became this uh, gun for hire, if you will. I would come in every time there was a big deal to, to get done. I would come in essentially as, as the closer it was a bit of a transitional period of my life. I remember when I was trying uh, to label what I did and figure out, one of my friends suggested that I call myself the headman. So that stuck around for a while. But what ended up happening, I built a, essentially a consulting operation where I would help get deals done. I worked myself into some very large deals. I was able to participate in a $400 million acquisition by Google of a startup I participated in. I helped a different company do a major fundraise. It's one of the biggest deals I've ever been on. We raised $2.4 billion. I had the opportunity to close a single $500 million check from as an investment. And eventually, as I grew closer to the venture world and, and began to work with younger and very interesting companies, I stumbled upon a very interesting problem. I started seeing all of these really good companies that had tremendous ideas, very strong products fail. And I didn't really understand why. They had really cool products. And when I began looking into why these companies were failing, I began talking to the founders and talking to the investors. And I discovered that out of all the companies in any given year over the past five or 10 years that would close their Series A of funding, about 800 of these companies would stack in growth in spite of, of the huge infusion of capital. And I began you know, researching, why is this happening? And whereas there were a lot of similarities on, uh, among these companies, the one issue that kind of jumped to the front of the line was that inside them, everything that was business development, everything that was sales was still being done by the founders and the leadership team. And when it came to a point they could no longer scale themselves, their, their sales would stagnate because they didn't know how to go about selling the company or, or building a, a revenue generating process that was scaled beyond themselves. So in 2019, I decided to do something about that. And I launched what is today Get Traction Tools. What we do here essentially is we solve revenue problems. We help companies detach themselves from, from the sales process and build a revenue system that scales and allows them to, to continue growing. So we launched in 2019, all of uh, that year, and then we launched the product in 2021, I assembled some really cool people around the project that brought a lot of value. I would say my entire leadership team is comprised of salespeople, so which creates some very cool dynamics. 
So in early 2021, we launched our product, which was a, it's a revenue lab, which essentially is a 90-day process by which we quickly iterate and, and help these companies build what I said is their, their revenue process. So uh, a little, almost a full year later, we're now operating in 11 cities across six countries, helping a ton of companies solve very interesting problems. So we're very excited about that. Now you mentioned your nickname's the Hitman. <laughs> I think anyone that actually knows you'd probably think you're more like the Hug Man. <laughs> but all that information you just said right there, how many companies do you think out there could be saved if they actually knew sales? I don't know how I feel about using the term saved because there's a lot of factors that go into building success within a business. I would say 100% of companies will benefit from having a sales process that, that scales and that allows for the sustainability of that, of that growth. I would say that 100% of the companies out there will benefit in some way from having a correct, if you will, sales process. Sometimes building sales is not necessarily around process. Sometimes being good at sales means being good at selling your company's vision. It means being good at selling investors on what the future of the business looks like. So there, there are many ways in which we can build proper sales processes inside a business. And I can't really think of any situation where there would be any company that wouldn't benefit from having a better sales process. Okay. Now, before we really dive deep into the sales process before, and I got so many questions for you. It's amazing that it's great to have a sales expert on the other side of the table, but there's a lot of lingo. There's a lot of vocabulary. There's a lot of things that I think people make up to sound impressive in this. What do we need to know vocabulary term wise now before we really dive in? All right. As far as vocabulary, I would say for the most part, it's all very intuitive. We use pretty much just conversational language. As far as the terminology that we do work in there, we have our outbound, which is essentially when the sales team reaches out to, to prospect in order to tell them about their product. You have your inbound, which is when uh, you do marketing and you get people to reach out to you and ask you about their product. Then you have everything that are your, your sales funnels, which is essentially the methods that you use to, to initiate these conversations. You can have both inbound and outbound funnels. You have your market fit. It's a very important thing. A market fit essentially describes the degree of, of interest or the degree to which your solution solves a, a very important problem that is needed by your market. And lastly, the one I'll mention is, is the revenue model. That's very important because essentially your revenue model will describe the way in which your company goes about making money. And, and you have to make sure that if your revenue model is solid, because that's what can allow you to make the revenue to scale. So that takes into account what, how much your, your product costs to deliver, how much does it cost to sell, and, and all of the financial aspects of sales. Okay, so we got inbound, we got outbound. But there's one thing there. We are in Silicon Valley. Everything here is tech data. Does data play at all into the sales process? Absolutely. I think data is potentially the single most important resource that will allow you to grow your sales. As far as how we work, we deliver value in, I would say, not two fronts, but around two components. The, the first component of the sales process 
is everything that you could describe as the mechanical part of it, which is building your funnels, your email marketing, uh, the process by which you engage with your customers. Essentially, some people call it a sales manual. There's different names for it, but it's a mechanical process, an operational process of what to do. In this case, data is paramount. On the one hand, it, it will allow you to better understand your business. So there's two, two kind of indicators that most companies use. There's uh, leading indicators and trailing indicators. You would know about this being in finance. So trailing indicators always look back and tell you what's happened. Uh, however, those can be very dangerous when it comes to sales, because if you look at your profit and, and loss report for the quarter and it turns out that you're $2 million in the hole, then that's too late. You, you've already not made that money. So what we try to do in sales processes is building indicators that are leading indicators. It tells you what is happening within the business in real time. And what this data allows us to do, address problems before they become big problems. So for just to give you an example, one of the things we measure is after a discovery call, how many of these discovery calls will translate into a product demo. So by understanding this number, if you're making a thousand discovery calls and your team is only closing three, then you know there's a conversion problem there. So you can attack that and solve it in a very fast and targeted way so that when that P&L comes, you've already fixed the problem and it's not a, a big surprise. So the second part or the second component that, that we utilize in building sales processes is the human component, everything that is our psychological knowledge. And one thing that is very important for any salesperson, that the number one job of a salesperson is to gather information. The truth is that if you know how to gather this data and, and you know how to ask the correct questions, the vast majority of people will tell you what the problem is, how to sell them, how to get them into your company. So not only does it help you do that better, the first thing that you want to do is maximize the amount of, of effort. You got to make sure that it goes towards the right prospect. So by ascertaining, by gathering information very quickly, you can say, okay, yes, this is a good person. They are experiencing a pain that I can solve. So let's push. And these are the buttons that I have to push to get this deal done. Or five minutes in, you gather the data correctly and then you discover it's not a fit. So good luck. Nobody wasted time. And then your salesperson can move on to something else. So the way we look at data, the way we manipulate, assimilate and assess data, it's, it's one of the largest and most important parts of how we build sales processes. Everything that we do has to be data driven. So just to, to bring it for circle data is essential to building a, a productive sales process. I like that because if you have the data, there's not that ambiguous, hey, I feel this, I think this, I, it's there, it's in front of you. For the whole sales process, all the components, can you go more granular into what that whole process looks like? Is it just one outbound call, sign a contract, we're done, 100% close rate, Sean gets all his bonuses, or is there more steps involved. Each sales process for each company will be a little bit different, the individual steps. However, there, I would say there are four major components that are involved in the way in which we go about building processes. The, the first one is the sales. Most people think, refer to the whole thing as sales. That's not inaccurate. But for us, selling is something very specific. Selling is going and announcing in, in a more general way, what are the benefits? You're selling the shininess of your product, what the general cool things that it does. And the idea with the sales part of it is to generate an interest in your product. The second part of it is the negotiation. 
Now, a lot of people misunderstand what a negotiation is. A lot of people think the negotiation is over, arguing over price. That is called bargaining. That's a completely different thing, which is also part of the process. But negotiation is, is an entirely different thing. And I think the, the easiest way I've, I've learned to describe it is by using its synonym. So the closest synonym to negotiation is diplomacy, which is essentially a process of building a relationship with the intention of clearing roadblocks to get something done, to get a deal done. So essentially the negotiation process, as it's relevant to us, is the process of asking questions, understanding, let's get to know each other a little bit. Let me see how I can position my product to be the best solution for your problem. The third part of the sales process or the component of the sales process is the bargaining is the part where you agree on price. Some people will offer discounts. These discounts are offered during the bargaining process. I will note if you negotiate correctly, if you manage to build a solid relationship with your prospect, if you manage to build value in enough value in the product that you have as the perfect solution for your counterpart, then the idea that the goal of this perfect negotiation is to, to never bargain. You want to get what you ask for without discounting, without anything like that. But that's something that doesn't always happen. So the process of bargaining is agreeing on, the, on those final price terms on, on how the deal is going to get done. And the fourth and final component of any sales process is the closing, which is the part where you get your prospect to actually commit to purchasing your product it usually culminates in, in some form of a signing an agreement, an invoice, something like that, and then the hands off to customer success so that they can receive the value that you just closed them on. So those are the, the four essential components of a sales process. So for the company looking to increase revenue, in the past we've had guests such as Avram Miller, co-founder of Intel Capital. We've had James Cape also at Intel talking about, well, product-driven versus sales-driven. We've had other founders talk about, we focused all on the product and the customers just came, or we had this great sales team and we did this campaign and just once it was in the customer's hands, they told everyone. Should a, co should a company be product-driven or sales-driven or a combination of the two? What's your thoughts? That, that's a very interesting question. And unfortunately, there's, again, just like most things, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. Like I mentioned earlier, so focusing on the sales, it, it will always have a positive impact on your business. Selling something in a better way will almost irrevocably result in more sales. The best way I can explore this problem with you is by giving you an example. A couple of years ago, we worked with a company called Tone. They were one of the first companies we ran through, the, through our program. When they came to us, they told us they had invented a, a pretty cool, pretty unique wireless communication protocol. The product itself, it, it worked. It did what it was meant to do, which was they were utilizing it um, as a security and inventory control for industrial applications. Now, if we had focused just on sales, I'm sure we would have helped this company grow. But we felt that, that their growth was very slow and we hypothesized that they could be a better market fit there. So what we did, we got through, through a small uh, research phase and we hypothesized they could be a better use for their technology in ad tech. So what we ended up doing was reworking the product a little bit and giving it a better market fit. We went to ad tech, we, we did some customer development interviews and in about 90 days, this company completely shift their product 
we had a better market fit, which resulted in a better sales process. Now we could get in front of more people that were more excited about the product. It allows to significantly shorten the sales cycle. So just to, to shorten the long story, this company, when they came to us, they were scheduled to lose about a million dollars in that same year. By the time we got done, on that same year, they made over two and a half million dollars. Eventually, they ended up being acquired for a healthy sum. So if we had just focused on the sales, yeah, they would have still grown. They would have still had a really good sales process that allowed them to raise more money or whatever, but it wouldn't have been the optimal situation. So the balance is in, in having a really strong market fit, addressing a market that has a strong need for what you're solving, which sometimes it doesn't need to mean that you need to rework your product. You sell it to someone else that maybe have a better need for it. And if we had just focused on the sales part, we would have missed this huge opportunity. So it's very important that we always remain agile and in, in finding answers to everything. And that's so powerful, that information of just keeping those, your eyes open, seeing the landscape. With that, a lot of our listeners are early stage companies. They're, they're founders. When they start their company, and this might be the first company they're starting, might be the first team or salespeople, or it might just be one co-founder, your program, and I'll do sales. How do they set expectations for themselves or those people as the company grows? Is it just go out and make 100 calls this week? Is it send 500 emails this month? What, how do they go about setting those parameters, those expectations for that sales team? What's good practice? The, the practice of setting up a sales team and one of the most important questions there will be how exactly do you compensate them? And there's a lot, again, we go back to the data conversation. There's a lot of things that need to be discovered there. Last year, for example, we had an intersection with a company out of the UK. They sold planes worth $50 million. So the sale on a $50 million product is going to be significantly longer than if you're a SaaS product that sells a $1,000 per month membership. So Obviously, if you're going to have a salesperson working exclusively for you, you have to, to set the expectation that these people are going to be taken care of somehow while they work up to the first sales. There's an onboarding, ramping up, training process. So the way that you arrive at these expectations is by understanding, okay, let's hypothesize what is the fastest way we can try to get this done and aim for that. And then adjust as you build the sales team. It's, it, when it's a, a young company, startups are defined by how they iterate on solutions. We do the same thing on sales. Our sales process get built very iteratively. We make a hypothesis and we try to test them as fast as possible. When it comes to expectations, compensation, and all this stuff of sales teams, it's the same thing. We just have to, you know, hypothesize on what works and improve as we move forward. Now, does that change if it's, say a product that's in high demand or is that irrelevant? Is it, okay, we're going to have these expectations whether the product's in demand or if it's not in demand? The, the data about the market itself is very relevant. So I have trouble generalizing a little bit just because we work with so many different companies, so many different stages. And whereas the, the core of what we do is, you know, the same, the circumstances change. So yeah, if it's something that's being ran strictly on hype, then you can understand just by having the data, okay, this is a trend that is happening right now because of hype. This is how it could go later down the road. This is how it could correct. 
And, and again, it all becomes about how you assimilate and interpret. If you understand that, okay, like, like one of our clients, this was our third or fourth client that we handle. It was a, a tech company. They, their sales were doing about fifteen twenty thousand dollars uh, per month. When we took them on, I was still living in Houston at the time, so it was a very specific market. We wanted to capitalize on some hype that was going on at the moment, so we got, I believe, it's just over five hundred and fifty thousand dollars in sales in one in a single day. So you can take advantage of hype and you can structure certain tactics around hype, but then in order of how you go about doing that, you have to go back to the data and you have to interpret that data in a way that allows you to make very accurate decisions as to how do you want to proceed with your sales process. So with teams, with companies as they expand, I get to look at proformas all day long with the investment bank in where this company says, if we just had 15, $20 million, we would increase this number of salespeople with this number of managers and this number of biz dev and marketing. And I'll ask them, hey, how long does it take someone to ramp up, to learn your processes, to get familiar with the product, to you know, understand the processes that are going on? And the, whoever I'm talking to, his face just normally drops and goes, well, we're going to deploy the money over this amount. But they, I'm not sure if that question ever comes up to them. How long should a sales process take to learn for a new person that onboards at a company? To learn it, to learn how the process works, it should take about 30 days. Obviously, the execution is different. Some companies will have a longer sales cycle than others. But just to learn and truly understand what's involved in the sales process is about 30 days. On the second 30 days, this salesperson should ideally be operating almost autonomously, meaning that they should be operating on the sales process with a strong supervision of their sales leader. Within 90 days, this person should be already operating autonomously. So the, the sweet spot from zero, I'm new, I've never sold this product before, to fully operating and bringing in clients autonomously, it should take at most 90 days for the average. And what about going back to the sales process and seeing, is this the most efficient way possible or have we optimized everything? How often should this be reviewed? The data nerd inside me would say every day. The truth is that most companies should do a wide review of how they go about doing sales every quarter. Once a quarter, they should do like an official review. However, when it comes to our work, we want to build sales processes that are designed to adapt, to evolve. So again, just by keeping an eye on the metrics, this is why I'm glad that was one of the first questions that you asked about data because data is so prevalent in this whole process. So when you look at the data, you can make small tweaks and, this, and the processes are designed for that. You can adjust the messaging, adjust your schedules for your cadence, how often do you send emails and small tweaks like this essentially on the fly. So you want to have analysis of your data in real time, which again will allow you to, to make decisions also in real time and adjust and see the results immediately as you iterate on, on your sales process. Okay. And I know this is sales focused because <laughs> you are the sales expert. I've also sat down with many early stage companies where one founder's technical, the other founder's more technical. 
Neither have has any experience in business development, sales, marketing. They just don't have it. Maybe they get a third person that does or who knows. But how important is it for the CEO not just be able to sell the company, but actually know everything that we've talked about so far? I would say it's extremely important for a CEO not to be a star salesperson, to, but to be as good as this person can be at sales. You got to keep in mind the CEO is the number one salesperson for a company, regardless of whether they get directly involved in business development or not. It is their job to sell the vision of the company to their employees, to investors, to the public at large. So it is very important for these people to be well-versed in sales tactics on how to go about you know, negotiating effectively, about selling effectively. I would say most, most of the people that, that we end up working with, funny that you mentioned that as an example, because they are very technical people. And it turns out that it, it, is, it, it can be a challenge for, for some people who are very technical oriented to express what their product works in a very simple way. So part of being a good salesperson is exercising simplicity. So when it comes to, to leadership, senior leadership of the companies that we work with, we also give them a little bit of sales training. But most of it, instead of teaching them about the sales process and all this mechanical stuff, we work with them on how to pitch their business in a way that is just super simple, super to the point, and more importantly, resonates with their audience. So extremely important. Here in Silicon Valley, there's, there's so many pitch coaches, there's so many CEO coaches, and there's communication coaches as well. Is it even possible, do you think, to get some training for a CEO or someone so they're better, better able to communicate to their team, to their investors, to their company, to what they want to accomplish? Absolutely. I would say, I would remind you, so the first thing that put me on this path was the problem that I stumbled onto, which was sometimes when, even when you're telling the truth, doesn't mean that you're being believed. So in the case of communication training, Essentially, the, the work that we do there is allowing people to express their same ideas, their same product. Everything remains the same. We just change the words a little bit around and allow people to express the value that, the, that they bring, that their company brings in a way that their audience can understand. There's a lot that's involved in, in, in getting to that point. Obviously, we don't do like deep psychological training. Most people don't really want to learn about cognitive psychology. It's just too much. So what we've distilled everything down to is just a set of tools. Some of them we built on other people's work. A lot of stuff we've created ourselves. But essentially, the way we do this kind of training is by giving the, the CEOs or the salespeople a set of tools, communication tools. They work because of the psychological principles that they were built on. But if we use these tools correctly, we should be able to, to communicate our value in a much more effective way. Okay. Now talking about communication, talking about when you come in and work with a team, I know we've taught this whole time, sales process, sales process, sales process, but I'm really curious when you start working with a team, what does that look like? Is it just 
hey, I'm the coach <laughs> and this is what's happening or what's the process? What does that look like? We have a pretty specific criteria when it comes to selecting which companies we're going we're gonna to go after, which companies we're going to accept into our program. Once we made that decision and someone is onboarded, things happen actually pretty quickly. So during the first week, what we'll focus on, again, is gathering data. We want to develop an understanding of what is happening within the business, what metrics, if any, are being used, what is the state of the sales. The, prog the, the program lasts 90 days, so I'm, I'm not going to describe the whole thing, but at the very beginning, what we want to do is identify what the trouble spots are, build a basic framework of how the sales process is going to work based on hypotheses that we gather from this data. And we begin executing right away. The, the way I like to lead these companies through this process is never by working on the process for six months. And then you, is we want to just hit the ground running as fast as possible. So usually the first changes that we make to the sales process get implemented within just a few days. By week two, the first emails are already going out. So it's, everything is designed to just get us operational as fast as possible. And then it becomes the rest of the 90 days, a process of iteration, optimization, until we have something that really works. Now you said right off the bat, the emails go out. <laughs> I got to ask because you see this, even television, YouTube and all that, cold email this, cold call that. Does that stuff even work? Listen, I'm not going to get too deep into the metrics of it, but I will say email marketing, especially cold email marketing, is one of our highest converting uh, funnels that we use. I, I would say cold emails are a little bit like a gun with one bullet. They're extremely effective, but you only have one chance. Once this person disengages, once this person opts out, that's it, you're done. So even though they do work very well, the key is in knowing how to write them, how to do that initial engagement, which is where our process and our psychology and all that cool stuff comes in. But as a channel itself, it is one of the highest converting ones that we work with. That's surprising. I, I, okay, then I got to ask, with data, with this pandemic, this lockdown over the last 18 months, how have sales changed? I think the, the fact that now video conferences, video calls became more of, of a norm through the pandemic. It has really made our job really easier. In the past, if we wanted to use video conferencing, it was a bit awkward almost. Like people were hesitant to engage. They didn't know how to behave. Now it's come so prevalent that it's so much easier to engage with a person and, and build a relationship and just take them through this whole sales process remotely. So I would say it's changed in a very dramatic way, but it's changed for the better. It's, it's, it's allowed salespeople to grow their audience significantly, have access to more people, to be able to book more calls, therefore be significantly more productive with the same amount of work hours. That's interesting, the productivity per hour. Okay, we talked about including data. What about machine learning, artificial intelligence, huge buzzwords. Yes, we have to say it once every episode. <laughs> How are those impacting telesales or telecommunication or remote sales? Listen, my, my opinion in this is uh, it can be a bit controversial. I, I know that there, it, it's being used quite a lot. There's a lot of tools out there that will help you gather data on your consumers. There's social media. There's a lot of social prospecting. 
And whereas we do utilize that, we definitely take advantage of things that empower our salespeople to know more. We don't want to lean on that too heavily because it's almost like a YouTuber building their product on a platform and then this platform changes the rules and then suddenly you're cut off. So for us, we want to leverage if, if it's there, but this sales process that we build are designed so that we're not as affected when privacy laws begin to change. If suddenly this data, which data is a currency, so it, I see two things that could happen. Potentially, because the privacy laws are getting stricter, this data will come, become more valuable, therefore more expensive to acquire. And then suddenly you have runaway sales costs. Another thing that could happen is you either can't afford it or this data is no longer available to you. So if you rely on it too heavily, then you're cut off from an essential source of it. Whereas we see the potential and there's a lot of different tools out there and we do leverage some of them. For us and the sales processes that we build, we want to gather most, if not all of the information that we need to execute in a sale just by talking to people, by structuring conversations in a very open-ended way that allows us to get the information that we need without any friction from, from the prospects. And for our audience, that reminds me, anyone that was on Instagram following us, we do have a new Instagram account. Uh, that information will be in the show notes. So uh, if any of you guys thought we just disappeared, we did. But <laughs> so another quick question for you. I'm really curious, how do you go about early stage company? You don't have resources. And I want to make this as actionable as possible for our audience out there that does have that startup or as a service provider looking to build a brand or that. How do you go about social prospecting? How is that done? Social prospecting is essentially a way in which you gather data, you find customers within social networks. Going back to the conversation about AI, machine learning, you have a set of tools, a lot of which include that, that will tell you, okay, this person posts this kind of content or views this kind of content. Therefore, they would be more open to listen about these topics. There are some very powerful tools like the, the ones provided by LinkedIn. Sales Navigator is extremely powerful when it comes to, to gathering data about who, where are the, the people that comprise your ideal audience. So social prospecting is essentially a, a research process that allows you to get to know more about, number one, your market at large, and number two, your individuals that you're about to, to talk to in your sales process. So it's all about being creative. I know some of the salespeople, they look for, for very interesting things in social prospecting, like whether or not they like dogs or all kinds of weird thing that allows them to, to make a connection. But it's all data gathered through, through publicly available social media. I get those emails where it's, hey, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well. <laughs> or what type of salsa dancing do you like? And then they go into the sales pitch. At the very beginning, you mentioned researching and, and discovering a couple of sales coaches and diving in deep. Is there, are there any sales coaches out there, any information online that maybe someone in our audience that wants to learn more could resource or a direction you can point them in? Absolutely. So as far as selling and negotiating the process of you know, getting someone to buy your product. There was one name above all of the people that, that I've learned from that has really stood out, and that's Chris Voss. 
So he, he was a, a negotiator for the FBI and he, the way he negotiates is like there, there is no meat in the middle. In fact, his book is called Never Split the Difference. It was a hugely influential book for me. And he teaches negotiation under the premise that, that you cannot lose. If you have a hostage situation, which is where essentially he learned to negotiate, you can never say, okay, if you want a $50,000, we don't have it. Give me 25 and just kill one of the hostages. Like you can't do that. So you have to win no matter what. So Chris was really cool at putting together a lot of tools based on psychological and behavioral economics that help tremendously in the sales process. Somebody wants to learn more than the tools, but rather the reasons that these tools work and, and the psychological mechanics at play when we're selling, when we're interacting with each other. I would say Daniel Kahneman is, uh, he's a, a behavioral psychologist that did outstanding work in the field. And I know his work allowed me to, to really expand how we go about building sales and how we go about creating those, those pitches that are really captivating and, and create this aha reaction from your prospects. So if for someone that's really passionate about the spirit of sales and negotiation and communication in general, those two people should keep them busy for quite a long time. And then for yourself, looking back through your career, what knowledge now would you have tried to pass on to a younger, earlier, less experienced you? That's a very good question. It, it actually doesn't have a lot to do with sales as much as it has to do with life in general. And it's that you have to build a mindset and it took me a very long time to even start developing this mindset of you, you work really hard, but you also have to trust the process. You know, some people call it, let it go or pause or, or whatever you want to call it. But it's essentially, it's a process of just trusting that you'll end whatever you need to be at. And as long as you continue to pursue and never give up, you work diligently, but without that thirst, that hunger, I need this deal now. But rather just trust the process and get knowledge and just become better at it, like you will succeed. And, and that's something that I now teach my founders. I, I, I have these companies coming to me and saying, oh my God, we're about to lose our funding. We don't know what to do if we don't make sales. And just for a second, just talking to someone and saying, listen, this is what I've learned. No matter what, something good is going to come out of this. And I think we can help you or not, but whatever. But whether this works out or not, you'll be fine and you'll end up exactly where you need to be. And I think that attitude really changes the way you approach situations, especially the challenging situations. Fantastic advice. And if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your company, and if you want to plug your company and what you're working on a little bit more, now's the time. <laughs> Absolutely. You can check us out at gettractiontools.com. One of the things we're really going to be focusing on in 2022 is expanding what we built here in the U.S. towards South America. I think that the South American market is about to be in, in, in a huge trend of growth and discovery and innovation. So we definitely want to get close to as many people down there for an exchange of value. We want to send some of the companies we work with down there. We want to bring some talent to, into the U.S. market. So that's something we're really focused on. We're also building an enterprise solution, which is a, a revenue lab that teaches big companies whose sales have stagnated to think like a startup and then quickly iterate sales processes and then build them at scale. So that's what the 2022 looks like. And if someone wants to get in touch with me personally, I think LinkedIn is the easiest way. 
Uh, it's Adrian Rivodeau. And I check. Well, how do you spell that? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you'll help them with that, but it's R I V O D E A U X. Adrian Rivodeau. All right. We're going to have that information in the show <laughs> notes for everyone. And then with that, I want to thank Han High Investments. We're at their location in Burlingame. They've offered us their facility to record today's episode. I also want to thank, once again, Sapien Impact, the Impact Hub in Menlo Park that connected all of us. I want to thank, well, my wife, Anne, Adrian's wife. Everyone's here <laughs> as our audience. And with that, our audience, if you're looking for an investment banker for mergers, acquisition, raising growth capital, secondaries, please reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Sean Flynn, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N. Also, when you listen to this episode, I know you're going to listen to it multiple times. There's a lot of great information here. Please give us a great review on iTunes or any other podcast platform you're listening to it. It helps us with the algorithm. It helps us get noticed. helps us with all those data points that we know are so important. And uh, with that, Adrian, I want to thank you again for your time today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.